0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now.
1: Hello, Deep State Radio
0: listeners. To celebrate the launch of our new login and feed management system, we are offering membership for just $5 per month or $50 per year. Members receive access to exclusive bonus content from all of our podcasts, an invitation to the DSR Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and more. To take advantage of this offer, please visit the slash buy. There's no need to enter a promo code. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. Thank you very much.
1: Nine, 12, Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm David Rothkopf. I am your host and I am a little ways outside of New York City. Joining us, well, she's usually joining us from Michigan is Barb McQuaid. She's a professor of practice at the University of Michigan School of Law and co-host of the Sisters in Law podcast. How are you today, Barb?
0: I am well, David, and I am indeed in Michigan.
1: Beautiful Michigan. My, my reports I have are it's very hot in Michigan for Michigan.
0: It's lovely. Summer is nice. And I know enough not to complain about the heat because warm weather is so rare.
1: Yeah, well, that's very Michigander. Um, And we are also joined by Steve Vladek. Steve is the Charles Allen Wright Chair in Federal Courts at the University of Texas Law School. And he is the co-host of the National Security Law Podcast. How are you doing today, Steve?
2: I'm all right. And yes, it's definitely hotter here than in Michigan.
1: Yeah, well, that's and that's par for the course. But you're in Texas.
2: I am in Texas, although on my way to the Northeast, hopefully where it's
1: colder. It's not colder, but, but we'll be happy to have you here. And We have things in, in Northeast you don't have, like electricity and water.
2: And responsible politicians, but that's another yeah, exactly. story.
1: <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, I wanted to talk about a bunch of the legal developments as it happens. One of the reasons that uh, you guys have such successful podcasts is that every week, There are big issues to talk about, and in this particular case, because they're so big, I guess three podcasts are are better than one, and it's great to have you here uh, taking some time to join us. So, Barb, let me start with you. Let's start with the January 6th committee. Seems like there's another hearing forthcoming on that next week. Seems like Pat Cipollone, the uh, former uh, White House counsel who was Supposedly, according to a lot of the stories we've seen, kind of one of the grown ups in the room in and around January 6th has agreed, I believe, to testify for the committee on a, I think, transcribed non public basis. I'm not sure, but I think he's going to testify. And uh, another person we've heard is testifying is a former deputy White House uh, press secretary who quit around the time of January 6th. Do you? Take these things and Cassidy Hutchinson and what we've seen recently is a sign that the dam is beginning to break with people close to Trump.
0: It does seem like that, doesn't it? Cassidy Hutchinson, I thought, was such a pivotal witness. She is what I would refer to when I was doing investigations as a bridge witness. That is, she may not be the witness you ultimately put on the stand at trial because much of her testimony was secondhand and in some ways was hearsay, though not all of it. But she leads you to some really important witnesses and some really important episodes that she talked about. And I think you don't get Pat Cipollone's testimony without her testimony. I think she put a real spotlight on his pivotal role in certain things. And I don't think it's any coincidence that only after her public testimony is he now finally agreeing to testify. And I think this uh, communications person you mentioned, Sarah Matthews, may be in the same boat. She's also you know a younger person. And sometimes That's what it takes. A young person who is not so entrenched in the administration, who has not become so jaded, who has not tied their political fortunes to one particular party or one particular politician who can say, the emperor has no clothes. Am I the only one seeing this? And to say it out loud. So I do think that this is the way these investigations often work. You know, the floodgates start to open. You start to hear from other people. And then people see that the ship is going under and they start to flee. They'd rather be witnesses than defendants.
1: So it seems like they're building this the way a prosecutor would build it, Steve. What would you hope to hear from Cipollone? I mean, is there something that you think it's core for him to address?
2: Barb hit the nail on the head. You know, Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony was important, but also it was in some respects secondhand. And what's different about Pat Cipollone is he was in the room where it happened. I mean, he was in all of the high-level conversations. He was in that fateful January 3rd Oval Office meeting and he can testify to what he told President Trump the potential legal avenues were, the potential legal liability. He can testify to what was told to President Trump about what was happening on January 6th, about what the president's real-time knowledge was as to whether the crowd was armed, what his intentions were with regard to going to the Capitol. So I think Barb is right that Cassidy Hutchinson was a bridge. I think the question is, What's on the other side of that bridge? And that's why Pat Cipollone is so important.
1: So, Barb, what are the pitfalls of getting the testimony from Cipollone? After all, prior to this and prior to our starting to understand what happened around January 6th, you know, he was a staunch Trump loyalist and defended the president and a lot of the prerogatives that the president had. Do you think there's a chance he won't be cooperative?
0: I think he'll be cooperative to a point. I don't think that he is going to want to. Tell all. I think he will answer the questions he has asked. I also see that they have negotiated just four areas that they're going to agree to talk about. He's going to talk about the meeting that Steve just discussed with DOJ, meetings with John Eastman, the events of January 6th, and meetings with members of Congress. But specifically, they have said he will not answer questions about his conversations with Trump. So, you know, there's some arguable attorney client and executive privilege here. I think that if you litigated it the committee would win but they don't want to wait 6 months or a year to litigate it they want the information now so they've agreed to these conditions so there's room for him to hold some things back you know if Trump said I know I lost but I'm stealing the election anyway we won't ever hear that so I think he is uh, he understands his job that he is an officer of the court that he has an ethical obligation to answer these questions truthfully but I don't think he necessarily wants to be a friendly witness. They'll have to answer the, ask him the right questions and he will provide the answers. But I think his, you know, his loyalties, as we saw before, are still with President Trump and the Republican Party.
1: So, Steve, as we sort of pull the camera back a little bit, we've got a couple of weeks left in July. I think we're going to get two, three more hearings from this committee. Then their work is going to wrap up. As of the last set of hearings, it's been very clear that Trump knew the mob was armed and wanted to lead them up in this moment of insurrection. That seems extremely salient with regard to charges like sedition and so forth. Another thing that has not been clearly established is just exactly what kind of interaction there may have been between Trump and some of the actors on the ground the Oath Keepers, Proud Boys, and, and others, that seems like that's something that we might expect to hear in the next two to three weeks. So, Steve, what are you looking for as they put a bow on the case they're making?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Barb's the former prosecutor, and so I, I think, you know, what, what she says is even more significant. But from where I'm sitting, you know, I think they've gone a long way toward establishing that President Trump knew that there was a very high potential for violence on January 6th and took no steps to stop it. Now we get into the messier questions about motive and intent and whether it was actually his desire that what happened on January 6th happened, whether he actually intended for the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, the other folks on the Hill to do what they did. And I think that's a big part of where this is going. It's a big part of where Pat Cipollone's testimony might go, not just showing what the president knew, But why he was doing this and what he intended to have happen, because if this is ever going to get to a criminal case, those are going to be really important parts of the story.
1: Barb, what do you hope or think they're going to try to focus on in the remaining two or three or four weeks?
0: Well, what I'll be looking for, if they have the evidence, would be what Steve is talking about, a direct connection between Donald Trump and the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers who have been charged with seditious conspiracy for planning the attack. You know, some of these attackers on January 6th just kind of followed the mob inside. They were very excited and they couldn't believe their good luck that the doors were open and they went inside. But the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, as alleged in a very detailed indictment, allegedly plotted this, that they went there at 10 a.m. There were more than 300 of them. They didn't stick around for the president's speech. They went straight to the Capitol. They cased it. They looked for the best entry points and they breached it. They were in stacked columns. One column went one way toward Nancy Pelosi, one went the other to find Mike Pence. And they had weapons stationed just outside the DC boundaries that they were going to bring in as necessary once they breached the Capitol. If Donald Trump can be connected up to that planning, then he can be charged with seditious conspiracy, which would be, I think, in peace times, the most serious charge, closest to treason that you could get in this country, that he tried to use force to oppose the execution of the law and the peaceful transfer of presidential power. There are hints that that could be there. You know, we have Cassidy Hutchinson told us that Mark Meadows thought about actually physically going, but then later decided to just call into a conference call on January 5th with Rudy Giuliani and Roger Stone. We know there have been photographs showing Roger Stone with members of the Oath Keepers on January 5th and 6th. They were allegedly providing him with security. In that Willard War Room, was there coordination with the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers that finds its way all the way back to Donald Trump? That would be to me, kind of the grand slam home run. I don't know that you need it to charge Trump with a crime. I think you could already already charge him with crimes of conspiracy to defraud the United States or obstruction of an official proceeding. But if you could link him up to the attack, I don't think anybody could ever defend him. It becomes an absolutely indefensible crime.
1: Okay, so again, I'm sort of pulling the camera back a little bit further, Steve. Another set of developments that happened this week that are not unrelated have to do with the investigation going on in Fulton County. Georgia, we've now seen Rudy Giuliani, a bunch of the president's other lawyers, and uh interestingly, Senator Lindsey Graham subpoenaed. Senator Graham has said he is not going to cooperate with the subpoena. Seems kind of an interesting choice for the senior guy in the Judiciary Committee, since he has absolutely no grounds not to cooperate. But the question is, you know, a lot of a lot of folks for a lot of time have thought this. Was the legal proceeding that might be the one that caught up Donald Trump? What have you learned this week that suggests that that is or is not the case?
2: Well, I mean, I think the, you know, the Barb mentioned earlier Cassie Hutchinson is a bridge witness for the January 6th committee. You know, I think the local prosecutors in Fulton County are looking for bridge witnesses for a Georgia specific election tampering conspiracy. And that's why we're seeing these subpoenas go out. You know, I think. To me, there's still a lot we don't know about where that investigation is and where it's going. But certainly, it seems to be trying to get closer and closer to former President Trump, trying to figure out exactly how coordinated the efforts were to try to disrupt the results in Georgia, to try to find 11,000 votes, to try to put pressure on the relevant state officials to actually change tallies. Um, And I think that's the question. And that's the evidence that these subpoenas are directed toward trying to uncover.
1: What about you, Barb? What, do you, what, do you, what did this week tell you about where we are with this investigation? I, was, I also thought it was fairly significant that the DA in the case has decided to go on TV and talk about it.
0: But in Georgia, I think she needs to actually get these subpoenas from the court. So these documents were public and we know who the witnesses are. So I suppose it's no secret. That she's investigating this, and so I guess she might as well explain what she's doing to assure the public that she's on the job. And I think this is really intriguing. At the Justice Department, they have got this enormous case that they're working, starting with the 800 or so individuals who broke into the Capitol, and then you know growing to the Proud Boys and seditious conspiracy and the Oath Keepers, and now adding we know search warrants for John Eastman and Jeffrey Clark. So they do seem to be building the investigation. But in Georgia, the prosecutor there has a much more discreet uh, project in front of her. And I think it's fascinating to watch her dismantle. She seems completely unflappable, unafraid of calling these witnesses. I have no doubt she's receiving all kinds of death threats from all of the kind of crazies who are out there. But she is methodically going about calling all the the right people. She has not yet uh, subpoenaed Mark Meadows or Donald Trump, though she has not ruled them out, which I think is wise. Let's hear from this. First round of people first so that she can be well informed if and when she decides to ask them questions. But with that recording, this case to me is the one that appears to be the strongest because we have evidence of Trump's actus reus. You know, all all these crimes have both an actus reus, a bad act, and a mens rea, a bad mind, you know, a guilty mind. In many of these instances, we don't know exactly what Donald Trump did, but here we have his voice on phone, what appears to me to be really bullying Brad Raffensberger to help cheat the election. Now the mens rea is the part that will be more challenging for her to prove. That is, did he know he was acting in bad bad faith? I'm sure the defense will be something like, "Well, you heard me say I believed I won by four hundred thousand votes, and I would just want him to find me eleven thousand of votes I legitimately won. I just wanted him to correct this grave injustice." That will be the the defense. And so I think you need to hear from people like Rudy Giuliani and John Eastman and others to determine that no, he knew all along what was going on. This was all just part of the charade, and he was bullying him because he wanted him to rig the election in favor of Donald Trump. So that's her task. But uh, I'm impressed by the way she's going about it methodically and swiftly.
1: Steve, you know, we know from the January 6th committee and from other things that the efforts to overturn the election or to produce fraudulent results or to promote fraudulent electors took place in a lot of places outside of Georgia and Michigan, Arizona, and so forth, why do you think we don't have visible cases in those places? Is it because this is at the DOJ and it's behind closed doors? Is it because there's no tape? What is the reason that the broader seeming conspiracy is not the focus of a visible investigation right now?
2: We don't necessarily know the answer to that question because we don't know whether there are ongoing investigations in those other places to which we are simply not privy, or whether there's nothing quite like the Georgia investigation in those other states. I, I think what we can say is, and again, I mean, Barb's you know, right on the money here, what's different about Georgia is the tape. And so we knew all along, I mean, we knew from when shortly after the call happened that President Trump had brought pressure to bear in Georgia, perhaps in a, you know, in a way and to a degree that he did not in other states, you know, we knew the reports about Lindsey Graham with regard to Georgia. That's not to say that there aren't investigations underway in other states, but I think there's a unique combination of factual and legal circumstances that are why we are so well aware of the developments in Georgia. And indeed, as Barb says, why the Georgia case, because it's so specific and concrete and limited and has at its core this undeniable piece of concrete physical evidence, is the one that's getting so much more attention and may indeed be the strongest of all of them.
1: Pulling back a little bit further, Barb, another thing that has emerged in the past couple of weeks is the decision by the Supreme Court to look at a case which could in fact confer to the states considerably more autonomy in making choices regarding electors and so forth. a lot of people are afraid that this case that you could prosecute Trump and you could take all the steps to bring this out in the open. And it won't matter because if the Supreme Court finds the wrong way in this case, states will have so much latitude to fiddle the results that we'll never see a fairer election in the United States again. What's your concern, if you have any on this? Do you think this is an overstated concern or or, or is, is this as grave as some people suggest?
0: I do not think it's overstated, and I worry that it is a bit complicated and maybe hard for the public to understand just how serious this is. It concerns me that any justice would even take up this question. You know, The question being whether the legislatures are the absolute sole last word on how their elections are conducted, and even their own state supreme courts can't serve as a check on them. That's so inconsistent with our entire structure of government that every branch has some check on it to prevent abuse, but if they're unchecked, they can do anything they want. A state legislature can say, we're suppressing votes in these communities. We're not going to let the black people vote. (laughs) I mean, all kinds of things. And I guess they'd still potentially be run afoul of the federal constitution, but anything within their state, they get to decide the manner of elections. And so not only does that jeopardize all future elections, I think he'd also create a defense for Donald Trump for what he did in 2020. You know, John Eastman's memo was all about, you know, attacking some of these different state legislatures or different state elections. If they can say, well, it turns out that Pennsylvania violated the law because their court allowed certain ballots that were mailed in to be counted in violation of the ruling by the legislature. So therefore, there was fraud in uh, Pennsylvania, at least irregularities, and so Trump was right to contest those kinds of things. So. I just worry that it clouds, not only ruins elections in the future, but also creates some plausible defense for Trump in 2020, even though, of course, that wasn't the law
1: at the time. Steve, do you share the concern?
2: I share Barb's concern about this case called Moore versus Harper. I I think it's worth stressing. Barb's exactly right that it's a troubling sign that the court even took this case. There are ways for the court to side with the North Carolina legislature in this case. That don't go all the way to the, I think, deeply scary end game that Barb uh, suggested. It's possible to say that, you know, state courts are, of course, free to invalidate what the legislature does under the state constitution. What they can't do is legislate for themselves, which is the issue in Moore versus Harper, where the North Carolina Supreme Court took it upon itself to draw new district maps after striking down the ones proposed by the legislature whatever the Supreme Court does, I think people need to understand that Moore versus Harper is by far the most important case the Supreme Court's for it next term. And, you know, I realize this is a rather stunning thing to say so soon after the heels of Dobbs and the Bruin Second Amendment case, but probably one of the most important Supreme Court cases we've seen in our lifetime because of what it could mean if the court goes all the way to the extreme position. Part of why I think it's more likely We get this somewhere in between decision that would be, to my mind, not especially coherent, but also not as disastrous.
1: Well, coherence hasn't been something they've really valued recently. Of course, you know, in the past, there was this sense that at least the court would make an effort towards impartiality when evaluating its decisions. There was a story that broke yesterday in Rolling Stone that suggested that certain members of the court had prayer sessions with so-called right-to-life groups that they then cited later in the decision, Barb. And this seems as though they just don't care about the appearance of impartiality anymore. And this comes at a time that the views of the court are at recent historic lows. Uh, But again, they don't seem to be influenced by that at all. Are you concerned that this institution, that a third of the government, is essentially being hijacked by extremists who are eschewing their traditional historic obligations as a court?
0: Yes. You know, a commentator today referred to what they're doing as constitutional vandalism, that they are, you know, destroying our constitution and, and they don't care. I think the Dobbs opinion was such a great example of that. A court that, you know, no doubt members of that court didn't like the Roe versus Wade decision, but in the past, justices had respected starry decisis and precedent. And instead, this this court did, you know, back somersaults to find ways around that. And it absolutely delegitimizes the court when they do that. I can think of other occasions, you know, Planned Parenthood versus Casey is one example in the abortion context. A case called Dickerson in the context of reviewing Miranda, where justices specifically wrote, you know, I don't agree with this rule myself. And if I were writing on a clean slate, I would reverse it. But I recognize this is long-standing precedent and people relied on it and it's worked pretty well. And so using all of the factors we use for starry decisis, they all point in favor of upholding this precedent. To, in the face of that, to overrule Roe versus Wade, I think has really delegitimized the court in the eyes of a lot of people. And then this story about the prayer with the prayer group, man. Now, I know it's not confirmed, so I don't want to assume it is true, but you correctly note that the court did not issue a statement, so they didn't deny it either. And I think about the judges I have spent time with here in Michigan, district court, court of appeals judges. They are so scrupulously careful of avoiding all appearances of conflicts of interest. You know, they don't go to certain events. They stay home from certain kinds of things. They don't associate with certain kind of people because they don't ever want their objectivity or their independence to be questioned. And here we've got at least reports of justices doing that. It really suggests they just don't care. You know, hey, I'm here for life. What are you going to do?
1: As you mentioned that, I think back on an occasion, a dinner party that I had at my house, and there was a senior judge in a court system there. And the conversation got real political. And the judge excused themselves and said, I'm going to go in the other room. And when you're finished with the conversation, I'll come back. And just did not want to participate. And there were eight people there. It was not, you know, it was not public, it was private. It was just a matter of having an ethical standard. But, Steve, you know, when you look at the court right now, Barb is right to point out the sort of legal issues with the way they're behaving. But you also have not just this prayer case, you have the Ginny Thomas case, you have the Lying under oath of, of certain justices in terms of as on their way to getting their jobs, there are even other you know issues. You know what the the ties between the Trump family and Justice Kennedy's son at Deutsche Bank and and the whole host of other things, and and all of a sudden people look at the court the way they look at the Congress, and they're like they they don't seem to have any ethical standards. How do we rein this in? Can we rein this in or? Are we going to be dictated to by an extremist group for the next 20 or 30 years?
2: Well, I I mean, I think one of the things that all of this speaks to David, is that the checks and balances that are supposed to actually exert pressure on the justices to not get so out of kilter have broken down. And that as opposed to the first 200 years of the Supreme Court history, when it was in this regular dialogue with Congress, when it was regularly subject to pressures from Congress when it came to its jurisdiction, sending the justices out to go ride the circuit in the nineteenth century. You know, Congress has basically taken its hands off the court. And I think we're seeing the consequences of that on everything from what the court is deciding, how they're deciding cases, the absence of an ethical code that applies to the justices, the absence of an enforcement mechanism even for the disqualification statute. And so I think, you know, David, the story has to start with rebuilding and reestablishing those checks and balances. And that requires a Congress that is willing to actually invest in boring technical, but significant reforms to how the Supreme Court does its job, as opposed to the sort of big picture, fancy, glitzy discussions of adding seats to the court-adding term limits. And I think that's not a conversation we've been having.
1: But, you know, there've been a couple, but uh, you're absolutely right. And it certainly seems like something that's on the agenda. We're very delighted that you guys joined us for this discussion. We went very quickly through a whole host of big issues. For those of you out there who would like to hear more about these issues, as I noted at the outset, Barb is co-host of the Sisters in Law podcast, excellent podcast. Steve is co-host of the National Security Law podcast, also an excellent podcast. Don't abandon us just because you're listening to them. But by all means, listen to them too. These are excellent sources of expert information at a time of great turmoil. And as is clear from our conversation, that period of turmoil is going to continue for months and years to come. So you've got to stay zeroed in on these things. That's why we feel so fortunate to have had Barb with us today, to have Steve with us today, and to have had all of you listen. Join us again soon for the next edition of DSR. Bye-bye.